1: Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. when it got wheels off. Bill Janovitz is the frontman of the trio Buffalo Tom, for whom, as a side note, Yours truly opened a gig in the very earliest 90s. I was a solo teen folky and they were a up and coming Boston based rock and roll power trio, big, crunchy guitars, good songs. I always liked his band. He always seemed like a cool guy. And guess what? I was right. He is a cool guy. It was fun speaking with him about his new book, Leon Russell, The Master of Space and Time's Journey Through Rock and Roll History. Sounds like a lot. And it seems, after speaking to Bill, like it is a lot. This Leon Russell book covers a lot of ground, covers a lot of the aforementioned rock and roll history. So it was cool getting to talk to Bill about this, the newest chapter of his creative journey, getting to pick his brain about the decades he's been in the band Buffalo Tom, and just getting to hear how he's made it all work. He is, uh, you know, he's a little bit older than me. He has been able to carve out a life post-90s indie rock. He has wound up doing um, some uh, real estate on the side. And now he is an author, I guess, even as his primary uh, career at the moment. But he still does music. So there's a lot. There's a lot going on. I feel like it's a super useful conversation, interesting conversation with the great Bill Janovitz of Buffalo Tom and the new Leon Russell biography. Please welcome to Wheels Off, Bill Janovitz. Welcome to Wheels Off, Bill Janovitz. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Rhett. Um, for the edification of our listeners, where are you logging in from? I'm in Lexington, Massachusetts, right outside of Boston. Nice. And that's where you grew up. Like That's your...
0: Not well, long story short, I grew up mostly in New York until I was about 16 or so in Long oh, Island. Okay, and then we moved up to here. So I've been in, around Massachusetts and Buffalo Tom formed up at UMass Amherst.
1: Oh, yeah, isn't that where the Pixies also formed?
0: Yeah, sort of Joey and um and Charles were there, but they didn't really form until they came to Boston. But that's where uh Mascus was going to Jay Mascus was going to school and. He was sort of uh, a a leading light figure for us at that time. There was not much happening up there for all the five colleges and tons of students. There was not much in the way of rock going on up there.
1: But boy, it happened pretty quickly in Boston thereafter.
0: It certainly did, yeah. So that's where we went. As soon as we got out of school, we all went to Boston.
1: God, a lot of great guitar tones. I always really loved your just crunchy guitar tone.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's... uh... It all comes from sort of that Who's Who. I mean, classic rock. You know, I grew up listening to Neil Young and Keith Richards and all those crunchy gut guitar players, like like
1: you. I'm sure. Yeah, so good. Um, so, congratulations on the new book. What a giant undertaking! Thank you. Yeah, it was. It's big. <laughs> How long did you spend working on this?
0: Well, it was a perfect uh, sort of pandemic project for me. I mean, uh, you know, I got a, I've got another day job selling real estate, but that actually got weirdly busy. I thought it was going to be slow. And, you know, it has its really slow periods, which is what it's good for, for a musician. Um, but yeah, I, it was, it was basically more, more than two years uh, from start to finish, but the pandemic was also good because a lot of people were off the road. I mean, for me, it was, it was good for, it's for, <laughs> easy for me to reach people because they were off the road. So, you know, the chances of me getting in touch with whatever, Clapton, Springsteen, uh, Elton John, Willie Nelson, all these people, uh, it, it would have been probably much more challenging had, had it not been during the pandemic.
1: And you were working with his family, right? So you had the introduction through them?
0: Yeah, sort of. I mean, it's it's a weird relationship. It's kind of the perfect in a way, perfect way to write a a biography. It's sort of like Warren Zanes did with Tom Petty, though Tom Petty was still alive. Um, But Tom sort of said, this is your book, and and just you know made some sort of arrangement to just be able to have a look at it before it goes out with me it was more like they were just looking for somebody to write a book about leon russell and i made sure that this was going to be my book it wasn't a work for hire you know so there's this sort of cooperation agreement like like they were going to help me get access or some materials but really it was kind of just more like hitting the pavement myself and and, i mean it was certainly good to have the blessing but in some ways actually people said who is this authorized by and i would say I would say the estate and they'd say, no, thank you. I, I, it's weird. Like I, I think certain people have certain ideas about not wanting to ruffle feathers or whatever, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, there was zero chance
0: you were going to do like a hatchet job. Right. I mean, I wasn't going to do a hatchet job because that's not interesting to me, but neither is a hagiography, hagiography, how do you pronounce it? I wasn't going to, I wanted it to be a real honest book and, and uh, you know, a hundred and something, 130, 140 interview subjects, you hopefully get, past the Rashomon, uh, effect and yeah. get everybody's, uh, you, you get sort of a consensus of who this guy was. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure I didn't get it all completely right, but I think I've got a pretty good picture of who, who he
1: was. Wow. And, and you interviewed some, like you just listed off some, some heavy hitters for this. Was that intimidating or weird or easy?
0: Yeah, it was, uh, and, and maybe this, maybe this will, maybe you'll resonate with this. I mean, for me, it was like interviewing my record collection, I say. I, I was just like, I don't know, I'll try Steve Winwood. Hey, Steve Winwood, how you doing? It's like, it was crazy, you know, like all these, um, Rita Coolidge, Claudia Lanier. I mean, it became, first I was really nervous about it. And, I, and this is my third book, but my first two books on the Stones were more of like a point of view and using existing material. I did, I did a number of interviews, especially for the second one rocks off but for this one um it was so many interviews and once you start to you know i was like there's a bit of the dog that catches the bus thing you know it's like I'm, i mean my wife grew up in new jersey and i'm like i got a bruce springsteen interview and she got herself all fixed up did her hair got her makeup on and this is for a phone interview <laughs> and she sat outside the door she said just in case you know i i, I so, but it, then it becomes, and this is where maybe it resonates with you, you get past the nervousness thing, and then it becomes like a a, a charge, like an addiction. It's like, uh, who who else can, I can't wait to talk to this next person. And it really becomes, uh, like you listen to Terry Gross or Mark Maron or whoever, and you, these people that l- are such good interviewers, and they love to talk to people, and that's what it becomes, you know, something like that.
1: Yeah, that is so cool. And uh, it seems like the reception's been great already. I think
0: so. Yeah. It's off to a, it's off to a good start. I mean, it comes out on, on, on March 14th and hopefully it, it has some, has some wheels.
1: <laughs> oh my God. So, okay. Um, I know that this is in the can and this is what you're promoting right now, but I figure it's been done for a little while. And I wonder, um, is there another project? What are, is there a project you're currently working on and, and how does it light you up?
0: No, I mean, you know, I, right now it's back to sort of Buffalo Tom world for creative energy. And I'm, and we were just in the studio with Dave Minahan here at Willie mammoth studios. And, you know, Dave played with the neighborhoods and the replacements and, and Paul Solo, Paul Westerberg. So, I mean, and he's such a a dear, good friend and such a, a a great collaborator. So, but you know, our band right now is sort of like when the three of us can all sort of find a, a week in the calendar. I'm sure it's like you, it's like, where, where can you all be at the same time at this in the same place? And, that that makes it very challenging for three grown grown ass men to to get together. Um but I do I I am sort of kicking around some ideas for a next book. Like I, I would love to continue to do that as well, especially as I get to be an old man. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I don't know what that next one will be yet. Probably rock and roll? Yeah, yeah, for. I'm not going to get into true crime, I think, but maybe who knows? <laughs>
1: Maybe they'll meet somewhere in the middle.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, there's uh, my friend has a whole sort of franchise uh, with uh, the Disgraceland podcast and doing all that true true crime and rock
1: and roll intersection. Wow. When you were starting out, did you know that it was always going to be music? Did you think that it was there an alternate path your life could have taken where you were just primarily a writer? Uh, Was there an epiphany moment for you that you knew that there was going to be a creative life?
0: uh, that's a good question. Um, and I'm not sure how, how 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 you would answer that, but for me, it was um, like music is the only thing that sort of made complete sense to me from you know from the get go. Any kind of communication, I was really a shy person before I even became a, a singer. Like even when I was a side man playing in, in teenage bands, that. I was a shy guy until Buffalo Tom really and then I came out of my shell I guess but um it was a really it, it was the form of communication for me and that and that kind of dovetails with Leon really well because I talked to his daughters and he just really he was he was he he felt like he was sort of on the spectrum a bit I don't I don't feel that way but he was really awkward in social situations lacked social graces and his daughters said that you know with them he expressed love and his language, his love language was music, you know, to, to use their quotes. And it kind of, I, it resonates with me because um, it's just, it's, it's, in, it's like, it's like a, what a lot of musicians say, right. It's, it's just in you. It's, it's going to be there whether or not you do it professionally or, or otherwise. So, yeah, I mean, my fallback plan might've been being a writer. Like I was going to college. I, we graduated UMass and I would, if, if Buffalo Tom had to start it while I was, at university, I probably would have continued on and gotten my MFA there, or so, if I could have, um, or something like that. Like Joe Pernice was a schoolmate of mine, and he did that, um, and and his band didn't really kind of get going until he was in grad school. So,
1: yeah. Wow. And Joe Joe is such a poet, isn't he? He's... He really is. And you know, I
0: remember when he when when maybe it was just even when the Scud Mountain Boys were just getting going. I said, I said, your lyrics are are so beautiful and clearly informed by your background as a, as a poet. And he says, no, no, they're completely, I said, well, I understand. <laughs> I, I, you know, lyrics are not poetry necessarily. And he says, no, no, I don't even, it's like, he, he was like telling me back then. I mean, he's Joe is such a personality and such a big personality that I, I, I think he's, he's almost being cartoonish about it. You know, And, and Dave Berman was up there after I was there. Um, and uh, so, yeah, the silver Jews and that kind of stuff. So there was this tradition at least coming from there.
1: Um. So growing up uh, in New York and then moving off to Massachusetts, did you, um, you say you talk about being shy and it's really interesting how it sort of dovetails with the Leon Russell story. It was, it was fascinating reading about his stage fright, which I never would have guessed. Mm. Was that something you dealt with stage fright?
0: Um, you know, it's interesting. I'm I'm sort of no I, I I mean I was clearly I had the same kind of nervousness and anxiety that any performer with any kind of unless they're unless they're an extreme example of somebody that's that's overconfident or whatever I mean I think we all have to deal with that when we're getting going but I I mean only in the early days did I feel really physically nervous but. Uh, or mentally nervous, I should say, because now I always feel anxious. Like, I'm always like, okay, it's time to go. It's time to get on the stage. It's time to hear, Here we go. Let's go. Let's go. All right, everybody ready? And that kind of thing. And I don't like taking breaks, you know, set breaks and things, but because I'm just anxious. And I think, I think, I think there's something going on with the, the mental and physical part of my body that was sort of unconscious. Like, I won't get too deep into it, but I, I feel like I deal with a little bit of focal dystonia, which musicians dystonia where my finger will lock up. And it's, it's sort of like the yips um, yeah. that Chuck Knoblock used to get when he was throwing this from second base. I think something happens where my, my stress, this only happens when I'm playing sort of solo. So um, I think that's, I'm just starting to figure that out. Like, like today, like these last few weeks, I'm sort of looking into that at, at online and blah, blah, blah. So that's a diversion, but I, I mean, it's not like – I think Leon um, overcame his by being larger than life, right? Like Rita Coolidge talked about on the Mad Dogs and Englishman tour. All of a sudden, he's got the top hat and these, and these crazy clothes that he got. He was never that guy, and now he's strutting around. She said he was never a strutter on stage, and now he's strutting around. And he became this sort of evangelical rock guy, like doing these preacher sermons in, in the early 70s, and people – fell under his sway. He had this super charisma kind of thing and it scared him a bit. And I'm not sure if that's why he peeled it back. I just think he could only ride that wave for a certain period of time before it burned him out.
1: Um, you like me, like a lot of our friends kind of came up through an indie scene and did spend some time in, you know, the, the bigs as it were, and having to sort of flirt with watching radio charts and and that kind of thing. I wonder because all that stuff is external, right? And uh, but it can't help to it can't help but mess with our heads. And then there's all the stuff that artists are always dealing with, you know, internally generated obstacles, the voices in your head that are trying to shut you down. Or um, I wonder for you, what have you figured out as a way to get around those and get through those?
0: Um, that's an interesting question. I, I think you're talking to me now, and it's sort of all not in the past but the business stuff is in the past for me. Like, yeah, I, I don't, we stopped looking at Buffalo Tom as a full-time pursuit sometime in like 99, but we've kept it going. Like we never broke up, um, probably to our detriment. It probably would have been better to break up and do a <laughs> reunion tour. I mean, we were never good with, I mean, we were always okay with business, I should say, but, um, I think we were level-headed to, uh, maybe to a fault, but I mean, I, I I definitely, I, I mean, you guys started uh, around like 91 or so, or when did you guys uh, start?
1: 93, the band. A little after. Okay, yeah.
0: Yeah, so by that time, the goalpost had changed a little bit for mm-hmm. us and, and bands like us, right? I mean, like, we started in 86. We didn't really get a record out until 88, 89, but it was still the 80s. I mean back then it was like crazy that Husker Du was on got a deal with for Warner Brother on Warner Brothers records that the, the replacements were on Sire or that you know REM was all of a sudden selling these big places and it was like wow our and Dinosaur Jr was going over to Europe that was the, our most immediate example so that started to happen for us and we thought um you know it's sort of like Michael Azerrad's book that our band could be your life that was the circuit we were on and that's always sort of really Thought about like you could only really think to I really want to headline TT the Bears in Cambridge or D Bellum down in in Dallas would be like amazing you know like so uh, but then it really was like not just Nirvana breaking but that was certainly the big one yeah. I mean we literally inherited Nirvana's tour dates after they broke like in Europe we have this fax in my attic it says hey, Nirvana uh, canceled. Uh, they're moving on to bigger venues or whatever it was. Does Buffalo Tom want this tour? So we basically took all those dates. Um, but it really kind of changed the calculus and the, and the, the economics. And, and plus, I always say that it was like people that were in college radio or writing fanzines or whatever were, were now graduating and heading their own labels. And those labels were all doing well. And where they were at MTV all of a sudden, or they were no longer a college date. Now they're at, WFNX in Boston or whatever. So you have this sort of uh, network of supporters and everything, the rising tide raised all the boats. But yeah, Rhett, I mean, I started, I'd be lying if I didn't say that, wow, Better Than Ezra on our label opened up for us. And now, or, but never mind Pearl Jam or Smashing Pumpkins or, um, or Hole that all opened up for us. But it's like, oh, these guys, so, or, or this band said they were influenced by us and now they're like, they're top 10 and we're, I mean, I never expected to have a top 10 <laughs> record back when we started this, but all of a sudden you start to go, well, if if those guys, why not us, right? Like what's going wrong? And that, but that gets a, that gets very weird, I think, you know, I don't know, how how was it for you guys?
1: I mean, it's all, it's all the same, right? It's, and, and I wonder if it's, I, I imagine that it's every artistic endeavor, right? comparison becomes problematic. Envy is, is sort of um a really self-destructive thing but it's also impossible not to look around and wonder why not me and we all end up having partners or friends that'll say you deserve whatever and then you, you start thinking well yeah of course i do why Why is you list off those bands we had our bands at electric you know third eye blind was off making mm-hmm. millions of dollars and we're looking at them going these fucking idiots
0: <laughs> yeah i mean we had to open up for live for a tour that i we <laughs> i mean i went pushing and screaming against and uh but you know and it, it, that's when it really started to feel empty the whole thing because not not just empty from like what we want what, why those guys never mind those guys yeah. like we would be opening and there'd be hardly anybody in these you know we'd be the first of three acts the 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 gr- saving grace of that particular tour is that big audio dynamite were on it and they were a blast and it was really amazing to hang out with mick jones i mean yeah you know, that was like a rock star fantasy fulfilled right there but my point is that they were like this gigantic band, but nobody in the audience really knew who, who any of those guys were. It was just that, that they wanted to hear that song that was on MTV. And that's when you would go, well, what am I really hoping for? And then we opened up for the Google Goo Dolls, who used to the great guys who used to play with us all the time. And all of a sudden they became gigantic. But that was when, that for me, that was sort of like a, the big wake-up call. It was the end of the 90s, and my daughter was about to be born. And here I am trying to... Get these girls in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, as in you know, enthusiastic for our band, and they're going to be they're closer to what my daughter <laughs> my daughter's age will be than mine. And I'm like, I'm too old for this, maybe I don't know, and I don't know. It, it it's not so much uh, all of this stuff comes from insecurity, I think, because I think we would have been very uh, if you had presented us with the top of our career that when we were starting, like you will do this and you will be able to play headline, the Metro in in, in Chicago or whatever. Um, and if, if we could have known that we could have financially sustained that whole life without being on the road all the time, then I think we would have been happy, but none of us were like full on road dogs, like a six week tour followed by another six week tour with one break was sort of enough for me, you
1: know? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I know. I mean, you, you've probably missed some of your kids, uh, stuff, but not what you would have missed had you stayed hardcore in it all those years.
0: Yeah, I know. And how many do you have?
1: Two, I got, um, two, one in college and one a junior in high school.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So mine's out of college a year now and I've got one as a senior. Um, no, I mean, I really kind of was mostly home. Um, and, and that was by design, you know, like, Tom, our drummer, he had already had two kids by the time we kind of stopped. He was he was the leading edge. <laughs> and Chris subsequently had two kids. So I mean, you know, at like I said at the beginning, of at various points, maybe one or two of us would be ready to go, but not the other guy. So we were a real kind of team here. It's been the same three guys all of these years, 30-something years. And so yeah, I don't, I think it, it, the, the thing is, it's like, well, what are we staying on the road for? Just to make a living doing music? And It was all about, it was really like, we wanted to be musicians, but we didn't necessarily want it to be a career in rock, to use the Volcano Suns uh, album title. Um, But I don't know if, listen, I mean, you know, I would have loved to have Pearl Jam's success or Wilco's success or whoever's success, you know, like to be able to get to a certain level where you don't have to tour all the time, but... You're making a nice living. I'm not, I need I didn't need to be rich. I just wanted to sort of make a nice working class living.
1: Yeah, and not have to stress out every month about the mortgage payment. Right, right. So I, I myself have had dreams of writing you know, like long form fiction and prose yeah. and working working in the in the, the world of letters. And I wonder for you, all the years, uh hours, thousands of hours you spent doing music. How much did it feel like that uh, transferred into your career as a writer?
0: Uh, That's a good question. So for me, it's very specifically about, um, it started with Exile on Main Street for 33 and a third, Mm -hmm. and then the Stones rocks off, which is 50 tracks, and using those 50 songs to sort of tell the story of the Stones. But my love of writing about music is the ability that I, or at least the challenge, I think I've got some ability to be able to articulate why certain songs work. In fact, when Buffalo Tom was just starting to wind it down a bit and I was starting to ramp up being home 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 dad, you know, um, full-time home guy. Um, I was writing freelance for allmusic.com and I was just doing songs and just picking songs that I loved and about why these certain songs were great. And it was like 25 bucks a pop. And but I was writing for I would be writing for hours. Like you see most people's song synopsis and they're a paragraph. Mine are like three pages long. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because i would just sort of go on and on about like the background and why this why i love this song and what's going on in the recording so and you would be able to do this as well having made so many records to be able to um express like like Buff- when when buffalo tom started i don't think we could tell you what was a bridge you know or like what was a middle age or you know but now you sort of learn like you're in the studio you're with this so-and-so producer you're you start collaborating with different people and so I feel like that's my strength. And so this is my first sort of straight up biography, but I really wanted to lean into the music part of it, not like we said earlier, that I don't want to do a hatchet job. I'm not looking for a kiss and tell. I'm not like, it's not hammer of the gods. And I love those sorts of books, but I'm, I'm, I wanted to write about a musician, you know, and, and his, and his music is what was most important. And so to, to write about the records and the songs is, is, that's where the music background comes, informs the writing background.
1: How did you wind up with Leon? I mean, what, what was it that drew you to him? Is it, was it a lifelong interest in his music or was there a specific story that pulled yeah. you in?
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I'm i the oldest of five and um, I had another friend who who, was, who played bass with me in my first band. I'm talking about like 12, 13 years old. And somehow he was to really esoteric music. Like he had Mad Dogs and an Englishman. He had like the Crusaders. He had like, Grateful Dead records. He had Zappa. He was into like fusion and stuff. And I, I don't know, he's a little guy, you know, like, I don't know how he fell into all these records, but, but Mad Dogs and Englishmen was a particular obsession of mine. I just thought, this is what I love. Ray Charles. Um, I, I, I don't know if I would have been able to even give you sort of why back then, but it was like, in hindsight, it was, I always loved the gospel aspect of soul, you know, like, r b but specifically how gospel music informed rock and roll and that's my favorite part uh era of the stones is from like the post psychedelic i love all of it but the post psychedelic era into sort of you know their fourth or you know let's say their fourth or fifth run from let's say goat's head through i love it all but i mean you know that that particular exile yeah uh and and, and sticky fingers sort of uh gumbo there and that is very much Leon Russell's influence, you know, and a lot of these people talk and, you know, they, 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 he, he helped them write shine a light. He helped them work through those changes when it was called get a line on you. And he might've even come up with those changes himself. There's like a recording of those guys working on it that you can hear on YouTube or whatever. Um, so I didn't really know. I knew, I, I knew Leon Russell from that record from mad dogs and Englishmen," but I didn't go out and buy a bunch of Leon, Russell records as a kid and tightrope was on the radio as a, as a hit when I was like, you know, in 72, I was like six or seven. So I knew that from being a hit and I knew this masquerade and song for you and superstar, of course, and, and primarily through other artists covering that stuff. Um, But I knew the story. I always sort of paid attention to him. Um, I shouldn't say always. I kind of, especially as I got older, I paid attention to him. I didn't go see him um because by the time i had focused back on who that guy was he was sort of doing gigs that didn't really necessarily appeal to me like midi stuff and and playing small clubs with you know i think he, he had a reputation for it just wasn't appealing to me but um i was casting around for ideas of what to write after this book after the stones book rather and um, it took a long time and i pitched my agent on on a mad dog's book and he said well, i was a bit too narrow and focus um and then years after that went by uh, subsequent years where i he he sent me an email saying you passed on leon russell right i said no i didn't pass on leon russell what's this about and then he told me that the estate was looking for somebody to 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 write a book about him so i'm like as soon as he pitched as soon as that idea came to me i said i knew the i knew the basic contours of, of leon's story and that alone it's sort of like the book outline was in my brain immediately it's like. This guy that starts off as a teenager with Jerry Lee Lewis. I knew that. I knew he went over to L.A. somehow and started to get to be this first call wrecking crew piano player. I knew the Delaney and Bonnie records, which are tremendous. I knew the Mad Dogs. And then I sort of lost track after he had the solo hits. And I knew he did some duets with his wife, Mary... After that, it gets dark and cloudy. I have no idea what's going on. And then uh, I knew about the comeback and the the amazing sort of redemption story with Elton John and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and that tearful speech he gave. And I was like, oh, what a great arc of a story there. And I just needed to fill in the details, particularly the 76 through 2010 details, which is a lot.
1: Wow, that's fascinating. I I love the... um... Uh, Pamela <clears throat> Pamela De Barr being in the room when he cut the piano uh, for what was it? For a song for you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, she was a real fly on the wall uh, and, and there's no reason to not believe her for where she was because I think she's got supporting evidence.
1: Yeah, pretty great. It, it's funny, I mean, Le- Leon Russell's story is just, it's almost perfect for the kind of, or it is so perfect for the kind of book that you're writing because he's kind of an under um appreciated kind of shadowy figure whose story is like a microcosm for like the larger story of rock and roll or popular culture you know of the last however many decades
0: yeah i think it'll be a great film someday i hope you know uh if not from my source material with somebody else's but it is. It's like, I mean, you've got, especially, I, I haven't seen this Daisy um, plus six movie, whatever it is, a yeah. show that there's this sort of, uh, the seventies are sort of, have always been in really, I think, at least for the last 20 years, you know, yeah. but I think that, I think he will really appeal to people that don't necessarily even necessarily love his music at all. It's like, what a great story. But I, I, for, for the reasons I sort of said, I, I saw him as a great way, a, a great guide through rock and roll history. Hence the sort of subtitle of my book. It's like, I, I like, I, oh, I wanted to write about Delaney and Bonnie, but I don't know if I could just do a Delaney and Bonnie book. But here's a good three chapters about like Mad Dogs and Delaney and Bonnie and who these people were and how, how great they were uh, at a, at, to the point that, you know, they influenced George Harrison and Eric Clapton and Steve did all those guys from England and Elton John. I mean, what a huge influence and ripples they had. And, and, El- and Leon was sort of the guiding force within that group.
1: Well, I really think it's cool how you've built a life where you contribute to sort of the arc of rock and roll history, and then you help sort of um, steward the the history. And I just, it's it's really great. I'm really impressed and and blown away by what you've done. And thank you so much for sharing this collected wisdom, this very unique um, take on rock and roll and a life and creativity that you have, Bill. Thank well, thanks
0: you. Thanks so much. Bro. I really appreciate the, uh, the 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 support here.
1: Yeah, this is great. I can't wait to see what you do next.
0: Yeah, me either. How about you?
1: Uh, Old 97 is about to go in and make a new record. Awesome. Can't can't stop swimming like a shark. I have to keep swimming or else we'll die.
0: That's right. Exactly. (laughs) Well, good luck with it.
1: Thanks. You too. Take care. All right. Thanks, Rhett. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes, That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreets Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Numbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you.